HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by The Green Grape. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It is the first week of being back from the break over the holidays, so it is now 2019. Very eventful start to the year in the world of uh, the world, I guess. Um, yesterday, many folks celebrated, uh, sort of ironically, uh, celebrate um, the the two-year anniversary of President Trump's inauguration with a march for women in many cities. And uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things going on in the world that um, are not too fun to read about. But um, I can't tell you how refreshing it is to soak in a work of creative nonfiction and um, even more refreshing uh, to read a book that has to do with food that isn't splashed with lush, colorful photographs of beautifully plated dishes. Um, it doesn't even really have any recipes to speak of. And I think that like a, like a beautiful garden-ripe tomato um, or some other pristine ingredient, um, sometimes stripping back all the clutter is the best way to let the writing shine through. Um, I'm really, really uh, impressed by this collection of essays. It is called All the Wild Hungers, and its author is on the line with us. It's Karen Baybine. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And Karen, you are, you're, you're in Minnesota right now. That's where you live? I am in balmy, uh, balmy Minneapolis, where I don't think we've gotten above zero today. Oh, no. <laughs> well, but we have sunshine, so yes. that helps. Okay. Well, it's a, hopefully it's a nice day for uh, some, some cooking um, this winter season. There is literally soup on the stove right now. I thought so. And what, what, uh, what pot and what is the name of the pot <laughs> All right. So uh, today is uh, the vegetarian cooking for carnivores, uh, and so I'm making beef Ooh. stew. And I'm using the yellow pot, uh, which Estelle? is named Estelle. Yes, I got and, it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love and that she you is have yellow these. and she is sassy. Oh, you know what? I have a yellow Le Creuset pot as well, and I think that they discontinued that color. I don't. I don't see anymore. I know it's great. I don't know what happened, but I did not name it, so maybe I should. Um, well, it's one of those really weird things about my kitchen is that the pots have names. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I, the one person I know who does that. Oh no, she doesn't quite do that. So, never mind. I'm thinking of uh, somebody who gives them like I don't know pet names, but it's not really the same as what you do um, with naming each pot. But I, I love that that detail throughout your book. Um, so, so Karen, you, this is um, congrats on this book. You're also the author of Water and What We Know, Following the Roots of a Northern Life, which won the 2016 Minnesota Book Award. And uh, you also edit a say, a journal of nonfiction studies. So, yes, c- congrats. Um, so great to read about your work. And, you know, when this book came my way, um, when it was pitched to me, All the Wild Hungers, that is, uh, I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, you know, it's, it's a book about, how would you describe it? Because it's a book, it's an essay book, but it has to do with food. It has to do with um, a memoir about your mother and her cancer and going through that experience. But uh, how, how, would, how did you sort of frame it when you're... This book really started um, in 2015 when my mom was diagnosed with a really rare cancer. Um, It's a childhood cancer that only shows up in kids under the age of 10, and she was 65. Um, Mm -hmm. And it manifested itself as a uterine tumor, and uh, her doctors asked her if she felt pregnant, and she was kind of embarrassed. She's like, no. Um, But she she thought about it and realized she did feel four months pregnant, um, and at that time, uh, my, young, my middle sister uh, announced that she was pregnant with her third. And so there are these really weird sort of threads of pregnancy and gender and, you know, those sorts of things mm. um, through here. But also, uh, like our family did with, with my niece and my nephew, we tracked, you know, how big the baby was by, you know, you know what vegetable, uh, you know, how big is it this week? And so at that point, um, the baby was, I think, a lemon, I think was week 14, and mom's tumor was, was cabbage size. And so the, the real friction of this, this book came from her doctors using food metaphors uh, to describe her cancer. Um, that cabbage size tumor, the chemotherapy infusions, the drug cocktails, and it was really disturbing to me mm-hmm. uh, as a cook, one who likes to cook, to use those those descriptions of wonderful things for this thing that was awful. Yeah, uh, I was used to battle metaphors. I was used to, you know, those sorts of war metaphors, but I was not used to the the food metaphors, and that's really where it started. Right. Um, since it's you know, it would be illuminating to hear a little bit from a sampling from this essay before we dive a little uh, essay collection before we dive more into it. Would you like to read a passage? I would love to. Um, I'm just going to read the first one. Okay. Um, It started this way. In early October, my mother's doctor asked her if she felt pregnant, if she had bladder issues, digestive problems, clothes not fitting right. My mother's immediate answer was no. But she went home and thought about where her weight was sitting, what she hadn't been able to exercise away, the constant constipation, 
The bloating she talked up to eating badly while traveling and realized she did feel four months pregnant. I tried not to call the tumor her cancer baby, at least not out loud. My middle sister is currently 14 weeks pregnant with her third child, and the family is ecstatic with joy. Six years ago, when my sister was pregnant with my niece, she sent a text that she and the dog were taking the apple for a walk. We thought it was cute, as we are a small, tightly knit family that likes to think in proper nouns, to name things, to put even the most quotidian into its proper context. My sister is pregnant with a lemon this week, week 14, and this is amusing. My mother's uterine tumor, the size of a cabbage, is week 30, and this is terrifying. Three years ago, my nephew was born at week 36, but he was the size of that cancerous cabbage. There are patterns here that I do not like. We learned that my mother's is a childhood cancer called embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, and they tell us it appears only in children under the age of 10, not in 65-year-old grandmothers. And I keep thinking of embryos, about the physical and emotional dangers of pregnancy, the risks of birth in a country that boasts the largest maternal death rate among developed nations, that women of color are even more at risk from dying as a result of pregnancy and childbirth, and that risk transcends economic status. Serena Williams' blood clots were not immediately taken seriously after she gave birth, leading to nearly deadly results. Activist Erica Garner suffered a heart attack and passed away three months after she gave birth. I keep thinking about what is inside us that never goes away, love and fear, scars that are emotional and physical. The long length of my mother's abdominal scar is a bright, rich eggplant purple, necessary so the surgeon could deliver her uterus and tumor intact. Her own mother's identical hysterectomy scar had long ago faded to white, an ectopic pregnancy in 1952 that nearly caused her to bleed to death. The lines that tie us together are written into our skin, into our cells, the potential destruction of a family present in its creation. Wow. And I thought I would just read mm-hmm. um, kind of one of the uh, uh, introductions to the, the cast iron. Okay. When she was diagnosed... I like to go thrifting. Uh, it's uh-huh. one of my favorite things. Yeah. And all of this expensive stuff started showing up on the, on the shelves. Okay. And so um, it, was, it was really weird. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd bring it home or I'd bring it over and, and my dad would be like, is she going to get rid of the other one? And my mom would do <laughs> um, When October days grow short and opaque and a dense of sky presses down like the palm of a hand, I crave cabbage. The resistance of green steamed just enough to bite Brussels sprouts cut in half and sautéed in butter and olive oil. In the Celadon spring, I always want coal cannon. In these early days of cancer, my family, my parents, two sisters, brother-in-law, niece and nephew, institute a weekly family dinner to alleviate the fear in our bellies over what is happening to our mother. We are a family that crowds three adult daughters into the consultation room with our parents and our mother's doctors, prompting one doctor to look for me to my youngest sister and back again and ask if we are twins. And we laugh and say there are four years between us. Our family is very close, both geographically and emotionally, and this colors our reactions to the world around us. Because we live within a 10-mile radius, it is common for us to toss out impromptu invitations. So when we think about making each moment count, we realize we have not changed much about the way we are with each other. Cancer simply requires that we articulate ourselves differently, reorienting our language as we become intimately aware of the words we use. 
we come to understand the idea of cancer-adjusted normal, that what might have constituted a bad day a year ago is actually a truly good day today. We don't ask, how are you doing anymore? We ask, how is today? Mm-hmm. On one of these nights full of family and color and sound, I pull out, pull out Estelle, my vintage Le Creuset cast iron Dutch oven, rescued from a thrift store about the time my mother was diagnosed, and I realize that Estelle is week 14 lemon yellow, and I'm seeing pregnancy and cancer and food everywhere. Tonight, I want the bright of braised red cabbage against that pale yellow enamel, the bite of vinegar and sharp apples, because today is a day that stings the inside of my skin like balsamic breathes too deeply. I saute the sharpness of two thinly sliced onions down to sweetness, then add fennel seeds until they warm the room. Three Granny Smith apples cut into chunks are stirred gently into the onion, and then I turn to the red cabbage, which will be topped and added to the pot with enough balsamic vinegar to braise over the course of an hour. I refuse to think of pathology as I slice harder than necessary through dark purple and white, the hidden patterns and swirls in the packed leaves too beautiful to be accidental. That's so lovely. And uh, I actually have a head of red cabbage I might have to make that recipe with. Is that a sort of um, uh, a German recipe, the braised I red cabbage? I got it from Jamie Oliver. Oh, okay. I am not good at uh, <laughs> uh, creating recipes out of thin air, so yeah. that one I got from Jamie Oliver. Oh, it sounds really good, though. It's so good. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the language of food, it, it really finds its way, as you demonstrated, um, into so many parts of life. Um, you know, th- common sayings like breadwinner um, the, uh, and other things like daily bread, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the apple of my eye or something like that. Um, was yeah. it a surprise to you that it also... Or why was it so, I guess, impactful when you learned that it also has to do with the medical practice? They use a lot of food um, metaphors. I think it's a matter of, you know, it tastes like chicken. And and the whole purpose of metaphor is to describe something we don't know mm-hmm. by something we do. And so, you know, it's really hard to picture, you know, a, a tumor. Um, but they say, you know, cabbage size. Well, I've held a cabbage before. Um, or, you know, those sorts of, of comparisons to, um, to things that are familiar. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, the ways that, that the doctors made the cancer real to us in some ways, um, even though I really, really didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you know, you demonstrate throughout this book, um, so lovingly, um, many other ways to, to use food as a metaphor, um, for family, for love, for all sorts of concepts, really. Um, did you, okay. So when you decided to write this book, were you always interested in cooking? Was that always a huge hobby of yours or did you really dive into it more? No, I didn't. Um, my, my family is very, I mean, I come from, uh, a rural, um, you know, I grew up in, in the 1980s uh, in rural Minnesota, and my, my grandparents, you know, grew up during the Depression, and so they were really utilitarian cooks. Um, there wasn't a whole lot um, of true joy in the cooking that, that my mom did or, or that my, my family did. Um, I didn't really start cooking um, until about 2000, and actually... Uh, it was on my study abroad. I encountered Jamie Oliver for the first time. Hmm. 
but I didn't really You're like in start. person or. No, no, no. Okay. I, I was, uh, I think it was The Naked Chef, oh, okay. um, like the original show mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. Um, but I started doing more sort of self-sufficient cooking, but didn't really get too far into it until um, maybe about five years ago. Mm-hmm. And started collecting cookbooks when I traveled um, and looking for uh, I, one of my favorites, it, I got a uh, cookbook on um, the Maritime Provinces when I was up in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun to to look through that and see how food is very uh, specific to its place, yes. um, which is true of Minnesota, too. Um, it's really easy to, uh, uh, you know, look at, at the food of this place. It's kind of a punchline. You know, hot dish is kind of a joke. But when you look at the different regions of the state and what food is available, then you get into talking about things like food deserts and um, cold climates and and how do cultures create uh, food um, that that will get them through, say, six months of winter. And you write with like a reflection towards the past, too. I I recall when you're talking about how your great-grandmother would bake pies out of, uh, mm-hmm. she didn't do it so much for fun or for joy, as you mentioned, but really utilitarian. She was like cranking out pies for many people. And, um, and then in your, your lifetime, or in your present day, you're making pies with your, with your aunt. With uh, the nibblings. Nibblings, nephew and nieces. <laughs> mm-hmm. for, I think in, in the course mm-hmm. of this entire book, Learning that the gender neutral for nieces and nephews is nibblings is, I think, the favorite thing that I learned. You know what else I love learning is that you have this word, pank, professional aunt, no kids, which I didn't know about. (laughs) I I didn't invent that one, but yep, that's that's me. Yep, I don't have kids of my own, but man, I love kids, working with those kids and making a mess and sugaring them up and sending them home. Right. And I like that you, you know, you reflect that you're sort of rewriting your family's relationship or, or writing a new chapter, really, of your family's relationship with cooking um, through your, through each essay and through each dish that you make with them. It, uh, it was really obvious as, as we started to, to do more of these family dinners, especially as mom was going through chemo, because this book is, is really uh, the beginning to the end of chemo. It's mm-hmm. only a, kind of a six month uh, time period. But uh, my sisters and I are vegetarian. My parents are carnivores. My brother-in-law is. Uh, but my nephew, who is also a, a pretty hefty presence in this book, um, because he was three at the time and was diagnosed with a growth hormone deficiency. And so as my mother's bones were malfunctioning after chemo, so were his. Uh, but he was allergic to dairy, eggs, and peanuts. And so trying to figure out what I could put on a table that could feed all of us uh, was an act of creativity that required constant attention. (laughs) And a lot of generosity. And and I think that you can read throughout these uh, recipes, throughout these essays, um, just how much thought was put into each dish. And um, I love all the moments that you write about. Um, We're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude when we want to talk a lot more about your work.
This episode is presented by The Green Grape, a family of three businesses on Fulton Street committed to supporting small-scale farms, celebrating seasonality, and delighting our customers. Order local, pasture-raised meats and cheeses to pair with our selection of fine wines and spirits, and we'll deliver it to your door at no extra charge. From great local gifts to providing you all you need for a delicious meal, The Green Grape offers truly special and hard-to-find products created by New York's community of local makers. Support independent grocers and our site to learn more. Visit greengrape.com. That's green with an E. G-R-E-E-N-E-G-R-A-P-E dot com. We're chatting more with Karen Babine. She is an award-winning writer from Minnesota, and uh, her latest book, All the Wild Hungers, loosely chronicles um, her mother's journey through uh, cancer, chemotherapy, and uh, the, fa- the family's trials and tribulations throughout. Um, Karen, so if we could back up a little bit, um, I'd love to hear about your literary inspirations um, having to do with this book, or maybe just in general. Any food writers that that come out to you or strike you as um, inspirational for this work? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> and and, I was, Jamie and as you were asking that, I was trying to. I was I was d- dividing this up in my head about what cookbooks am I reading right now? What ah. food things? Um, but I'm reading um, "Eat Up" by Ruby Tando yes. right now, which is really great. Um, and finally. Um, uh, my salt, fat, acid, heat arrived. It was on back order for way too wow. long. Um, they couldn't but, make, print enough copies of that one. Apparently not, which, <laughs> you know, is understandable. Yeah. Um, but I think that when I'm, when I'm reading about food and, and reading about the ways that um, it interacts with, with not only who we are, but the culture that we are in and... Um, present history, past history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really interesting way to, um, to see intersections between things. I'm teaching a, a, a food uh, composition class to my, my undergrads right now, and I had them introduce themselves with a favorite food or recipe, which might be the best thing I've ever done uh, in a classroom. And I live in a very diverse place. Uh, my students are Liberian and Somali and Hmong, and they have really great stories to tell. Uh, and so having them introduce themselves with a food, um, not only did my to-make list get a whole lot longer, mm. um, I was really struck by the different kinds of intersections um, between cultures. Um, I have a student from Guyana um, who's the recipe that she was talking about had curry in it. And then I looked at that and was thinking... Yeah. How how is there curry in South America? Like I didn't understand until I Googled it. The uh, uh, you know the British uh, colonial uh, you know they brought their uh, uh, Indian indentured servants with them, and so food is never neutral. Um, food is political. Um, there there it's more than just we're going to sit down uh, and and feed ourselves. Is one basic thing. Yeah. So students are even an inspiration because they it sounds like they bring a lot of perspectives. They do. 
Um, I love how you are able to look at a potato and see a, a really darker side to it in one essay. Mm-hmm. Um, the history, as you're mentioning, about uh, you know of starvation, um, but also um, patterns of of migration throughout the world, and also agribusiness and how that's and monocultures yeah, exactly. and and all of that. Um, I really love potatoes. Uh, if I could eat nothing but potatoes for the rest of my life, I might do it. Um, but I started thinking about potatoes uh, as mom was going through chemo because that was one of the few things that she could eat. Mm. Um, she developed uh, what she called dead belly, um, that between her neck, uh, from neck down, she felt like her midsection was just full of concrete. And she didn't want to eat. Um, she ended up with mouth sores. So soft food was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so potatoes were bland enough that that I could doctor them up with a lot of butter and heavy cream to get her you know, some of the, the nutrients she needed. Mm. Because as I learned, uh, potatoes plus a dairy is a complete protein, which is how the Irish survived on them for so long uh, with very little else. Um, but it's a good example of food is never neutral. Right. That sure, here we have this thing that we take for granted uh, as a staple kind of food. And there's a lot more underneath that surface, which as a writer and you know, a teacher and you know, one who likes to cook, it's really cool to, to find those, those scratches beneath the surface. Yeah. And it's so, uh, I guess, it, it's so, so much a part of what we think of American food culture and specifically mm-hmm. in the Midwest. Um, I really got a sense of place through just a few, you know, food uh, dishes that you were cooking um, to, to the history and heritage of where you live. Um, you talk mm-hmm. about making pannekuchen and, um, and discovering a, a pan. I think it was an able skiver pan that you managed to break on the stove. That was a platana. Okay. Yep, that was a pancake pan. Yep, totally destroyed that one. <laughs> um, and it was, it was a moment where I thought I understood cast iron at yeah. that point. <laughs> and, you know, I'd you know, been cooking with the skillets and the, the Dutch ovens, and I finally understood this, this pan. I understood what temperature it had to be at to not burn my pancakes, um, how long I needed to heat it up. And I used it one night and washed it, put it back on the stove to have the, uh, the water evaporate. And all of a sudden, there was this incredible explosion of wow. sound. And finally realized that I had cracked it. And realized at that point, all right, cast iron is not indestructible. Wow. And whoopsie. Um, so but it was, it was a pretty disappointing moment right. in terms of and that wonderful little pancake pan. Yeah, and you lament that it was like this, um, something you found at, while thrifting, but mm-hmm. it was at made... The thrift store. Yeah, in nineteen thirty, or by a company that was a foundry that was serving the Swedish or Scandinavian mm-hmm. immigrants in Minnesota yep. that folded in some time in the teens. So that's a piece of history. So it's more than a hundred years old. It survived all that time, and then I killed it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you're still preserving, I think, many of the food legacies. <laughs> it seems. Well, the the other thing is that I was able to replace it with a uh, Nordicware. Um, pan um, that's vintage. I found that in a thrift store. And Nordicware, um, their factory is here in the cities. And so it is a, a Minnesota food history sort of thing that 
uh, is really fun to play with. And I drive by the factory all the time. Uh, and it's a really dangerous place to go in there because oh. um, I want to take all of it home. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's a good lesson, actually, a very practical lesson to know that cast iron can do that. And um, right. something you would have never thought would be indestructible is. Right. Um, so what else uh, would you like to share about sort of the food culture and how has it changed over the years? You write about a time where it was much more utilitarian cooking. Um, what do you what do you observe um, uh, the food culture having evolved since your grandparents, your mother's time overall? I think there's there's a couple of pieces here. And the first is one of the, the most interesting things is is to look at um, what we might consider stereotypical food and questioning where it where it came from, why mm-hmm. it is that way. Uh, my family's uh, Christmas dinner is always ham. And my dad comes from California, and his is always turkey. Um, but for my grandparents, um, pork preserved better. Um, okay. And so that is how that evolved for us. But one of the really interesting things and exciting things is that the, the food culture in the Twin Cities particularly is delightfully diverse. Mm. We have all of those those groups that I mentioned earlier bringing that food culture uh, into, into the Twin Cities, um, the farmer's markets, the, the restaurants, the, the fusion of um, what is here and what is coming in is, is really cool to see. And ingredients are either being added to the food culture or being adapted from, from what's available here. And there's, I think that is one of the most exciting things that about is- um, how food in, in Minnesota is happening right now. That's great. That sounds like a real inspir. I mean, that's a real motivation for me to get cooking is when I see new ingredients that excite me for sure. Yeah, exactly. And the ones that I don't quite know how to do with, you know, what to do with them. And so that sends me to asking somebody or, um, you know, going to the internet or going to the farmer's markets and asking the person behind the table, what do you like to do with this? Mm-hmm. Give me, give me some tips or give me a recipe, give me a place to go. And those sorts of conversations I think are, are integral to food. Um, yes. That's, that's really exciting. Um, well, Karen, your book, just, um, even though I, I don't have, you know, the same personal, uh, I can't relate on any, you know, on the family issues and that you mm-hmm. went through for your book, but I was really left with a sense of, uh, thoughtfulness about food, having read it, and um, also about family and, and so much more. What do you hope to to leave your readers with throughout this book? I hope, uh, well, oh, let me back up. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was thinking about in terms of that, last summer, um, Kao Kalia Yang, who's a, a Hmong writer, um, quoted her father and said that the human life is individual, it's not unique. And so I am not the first person whose mom had cancer. I am not the first person whose mother has passed away from cancer. And so how, as a writer, do I need to find uh, a way in um, that, mm-hmm. that was that sort of crack in the darkness? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that I wrote it, I was very intentional in wanting to make it as, as universal as possible so that those with experience with cancer could see themselves in it. Um, my mother is never 
she's always referred to as my mother mm-hmm. uh, rather than mom. And so I'm sort of hoping that the reader can can slip their own experiences in there without too much trouble. Absolutely. Well, it was beautifully done. Um, I can't thank you enough. It looks like that's about all the time we have. But uh, Karen, thank you so much for talking about your work today. Well, thank you for having me. It was wonderful. It was such a pleasure. And um, check back in next week on Heritage Radio Network. That's about all for now. Thanks, everyone, and we'll have a great week. Oh, I like the way you do. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.